Good morning. Good morning, Amp Blend, Roan County, down in Bearden. Good morning. Uh, you can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. If you have one smartphone, whatever you have with you. Um, if, if you don't have one of these journals we still have from, we're going to be in the book of, the, of Genesis uh, for a couple more series. And so it's still worth the effort to go ahead and grab one. Um, whatever campus, they should still have them. And then once they're gone, they're gone. You can find them on Amazon. So just an opportunity for you to follow along, take some notes along the way. We found that these are super helpful for a lot of people. So if you'd like to do that, that's awesome. Hey, um, last weekend, I, I talked about something uh, that, that if you were here on Easter, we talked about uh, my car. Talked about my car. And um, on Sunday, I told the story how I'd been looking for uh, five months, finally found my vehicle. I was replacing a total matrix that had a cracked window for like 12, 13 years. I drove it for like 15 years, the majority of which had a crack across the whole windshield. Got a new car and within five days, bam, cracked windshield. I mean, I'm like, are you kidding me? Can I not drive a car without a cracked windshield? And the answer is, no, I can't. Somebody came to me afterwards like, God has a message for you in the cracked window. I'm like, mm, thanks for the encouragement. <laughs> Appreciate that. So, so in my world, as we come into this week, it's really just metaphor for the world in which we live. We live in a broken world. We live in a world that tends towards chaos, and that's the series that we're in. But here's the good news in my world. I got a call. They said, your window is in. It's not going to be in August. It's in right now. I lined it up, and this week, guess what happened? I got a new windshield. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah, I got a new windshield. So I pull away, new windshield installed, and tell me I'm driving home. No, that didn't happen. But I'm, I'm driving home, and, and you can think less of me for this. It's borderline terror. I have fear of one thing. I don't know if you noticed, but there's, there's construction vehicles everywhere. I've never known that there's so many dump trucks everywhere all the time. I'm driving home and I'm just convinced I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a rock in the windshield. It's going to happen. And then every day since Thursday that I've driven my car, I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting. It's going to happen. Here it comes. And this one, I think, is a metaphor for us maybe in life and especially in our spiritual lives. And when we think of God, we're like, okay, hey, I had this bad thing happen, and uh, why did God allow this bad thing to happen to me? And I'm just waiting for the next bad thing. I, I've spent years of my life thinking of that as I would just think, okay, well, that bad thing happened. I'm just waiting for the next bad thing happen because really, how good is God? How good is he really? So as we take a look in the book of Genesis, there's a couple reminders that we're gonna start with. We did this series we left off six weeks ago. We began walking through the first five chapters of the book of Genesis. And, and as we pick up, here's just a couple reminders that, that we need to remember that as we come to the book of Genesis, Genesis is first and foremost God's story. It's God's story. The main character of the book of Genesis is God. Don't lose sight of that. As we go through this, the main character of the book of Genesis is God. It is God's story. Now, it's really important that we keep this in mind, and this means that the driving question of all scripture, but especially the Old Testament, is what does this reveal to me about God? 
What does this reveal to me about God? If you take that question, write it down, and approach any text in the Bible with that question in mind, you will never go wrong. Now, if you approach it with some other questions, sometimes it'll lead you astray, but we can never go wrong with that question because after all, the Bible isn't about how you should live. It's about who God is. And how we respond to who he is and how do we live in light of who he is. It's not a a roadmap to be a good person. It's, It's how do we know the God of the universe who made everything and live in relationship with him. That's a different perspective than a lot of people approach the Bible. Because the Bible is God's self-revelation of who he is to us so we can know him, so that we can be transformed by Jesus and live with him forever. So the question is, what does this teach me about who God is? Now, as followers of Jesus, we also talked about that we need to read the book of Genesis as followers of Jesus, as Christians. In other words, to not just approach it out in isolation, because here's what would happen. If we just approach it in isolation and we forget the gospel on the other side, we end up in a pit where a lot of followers of Christ end up as they approach the Old Testament in isolation, and that is you end up with a mindset of the people the days in which the book was written. In other words, if you come to this text that we're going to look at this weekend, here's where you would end up. God is going to get me. If I sin, God will get me. And if you think that if you sin, God will get you, that is an old covenant or an old Testament paradigm. You're not approaching it from a gospel perspective. So it's important that we guard against that. And we also aren't going to explain away sin, like God doesn't care. We just need to keep in perspective that when we're talking about the judgment of humanity, all of that was poured out on Jesus. He has already paid the price for humanity's sin in full, done. And so that means that he's paid the price for my sin. So as you walk away from this weekend, here's the simple truth. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you this week that you would take a sticky note and and put this this little phrase. It's just a simple idea that you would put it on your, your bathroom mirror so that every day you would remind yourself with this simple truth. God is better than I think he is. God is better than I think he is. And it doesn't matter where you are on a spectrum. You may think that God is mean and angry and he's out to get you. No, he's not. He's better than that. And you may think, I couldn't possibly think God is better than he is. He's better than that. So no matter where we are on this spectrum, I think we need to live with a conscious reminder that God is better than I think he is. He is not out to get you. He he is simply... um, the God of the universe who loves you, and he's demonstrated that in Jesus, and we talked about last weekend, well, how do we know that? Resurrection, and, and we know that God is for us. Jesus is proof that God is for us, no matter how many rocks fly at my car. No matter, right? At the end of the day, no matter what happens in my world, that doesn't change the truth that Jesus is proof that God is for us. So where we're going to pick up here in Genesis chapter 6, okay, I'm just going to tell you, heads up, this is, this is likely the most difficult text in the Old Testament for people to interpret. For a couple thousand years, people who are really smart have disagreed about what some of this stuff means. And so what we're going to do, we're going to jump in. 
Um, but I'm going to tell you, if you're looking for some absolute definitions on some things and you've been wondering about some things for some years about certain things, um, you're going to walk away disappointed. But just want to set expectations. Here we go. Hey, so where we left off is actually back at the beginning of chapter 5. We talked about how um, the, the, the book of Genesis is organized with an introduction and then comes a group of stories, okay, with the genealogies that begin with a phrase like, this is the book of, or these are the generations of, and at the beginning of chapter five, it begins with, this is the book of the generations of Adam, and it begins to unfold all the generations of Adam down uh, to Noah that ends in chapter six, verse eight. And so we're actually ending at, at the end of the second account of the generations in the book of Genesis. And then we'll begin next week with the third account in the book of Genesis. But really, this is the conclusion to the last series. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were in on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. As we jump in, um, there's some phrases, and this may be brand new to you. You maybe have never heard this text even read before. You, you have no idea, but, but if you've been around for a little bit, there's some phrases in here that, that you may have struggled. If you've read the book of Genesis before, you may have the questions like, who are the sons of God? And who are the daughters of men? And what about the Nephilim? Who are these people? These men of renown. These questions, um, as I've already said, they've, they've been debated for centuries. And so you're not going to have great clarity today. But what we are going to have the opportunity is to talk about a general Bible study principle. And that is don't chase the obscure. Don't chase the obscure. Just in general, if you keep that in your mind, don't chase the obscure. Look for what's clear. Okay, when there's something in a text that's clear, go with that instead of chasing the obscure. Now, here's, we, I, I want to give you some theories about who these people are, but, but they're theories. And in fact, if you read an author who says with any kind of definitive statement that this is who they are, that, that you need to look at that with some skepticism because anybody who approaches this have to say, I think, I think this might be who they are. And, and, and some commentators out there, they say it like it's definitive. They don't give you options. They just say, this is who it is. And the bottom line is, we don't know. And that's okay. Because what we're going to see is the point isn't about the sons of God or the daughters of men or the Nephilim. But, okay, 
Here, here, I just want to give you three options, three views that are out there. And one suggests that the sons of God are, are the, the, the people who are from the godly line. You can look at Seth's genealogy in Genesis chapter 5 and that the daughters of, of humans or the daughters of mankind are the ungodly line. It's from the genealogy of Cain. That's one theory, that you had the godly line from Seth and the ungodly line from Cain, that they co-married, and because they did that, that, that they, um, gave, they ended up corrupting God's plan, and in that, God brought judgment. The second view suggests that the sons of God are angels, and they intermarry with human women, and they produce um, prodigious offspring uh, that brings on God's anger. That God says, that was never the, what I intended. That isn't what was supposed to happen. We weren't supposed to have angels interact with humans and, and create super beings. That was not supposed to happen. And so he brings judgment on them. The third view is the sons of God are the kings or the rulers of the land. That they are the people who are in charge. And they practice something called the right of the first night. Now, this is a, a verifiable practice in history that, that if you were the king and you practiced the right of the first night, for any married couple that was going to get married, you had the right to sleep with that woman the first night, and then she could go be with her husband. How many of you are signing up for that program? Nobody. In every culture where this is practiced, it's seen as being extremely oppressive. In other words, it, this is how you keep the man down. That if, that if you've slept with every woman which, which got married, and then there's even question, are there offspring? Is there first offspring? Is it maybe even yours? Every man lives in doubt, and you have dominated them and oppressed them. This is seen as being egregious because it's egregious. Now, I'm going to tell you straight up, there's two people that I really respect that, that have differing views. One of them has view two, one of them has view three, and I respect them immensely, but they disagree about the view, but, but they don't disagree about that which is clear, and that is the sons of God marry the daughters of humans, bringing on the judgment of God, who then restricts the human lifespan to 120 years. Like, okay, here, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to respect restricted down to 120 years. Before that, people lived for hundreds of years. And we talked about it in our last series, like whether that's a figurative language or whether that's a real language, we don't really know. But if we're just going to read it on face value, it seems like these are 120 years or 120 years. And that seems to be at face value how we should read it. But now God has brought limits and then one thing that, that happens, with, we can say with clarity, is that over time, the people become more and more sinful. That over time, left to their own, people don't become better. They don't become more and more good, so to speak. That it says that every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. And so God says, hey, there's time for action. So what we're going to do is we're going to make three observations about God. And the first observation we make about God is God is active in the world he created. God is not withdrawn. God is not far away. God is actively interacting with the creation that he made. 
from the beginning of Genesis, God wants it to be clear to us that he didn't just like spin the world into motion and then step away and be like, oh, let's see how this turns out. No, he was actively involved with his creation and, and actively involved with the people that he made. He's not some distant cosmic force. He's very personal. Now, if I know this, if I know that God isn't a, a distant cosmic force, but he's very personal, that then, at least it should, impact how I live. There's, if I think that, that God is some impersonal force out there somewhere, then I can live however I want. But if God is personal and God is interactive, and then, then that changes how I view the world and it changes how I see God. You see, Genesis is first and foremost a theology book. Now, if I just told you Genesis is a theology book, you're like, I'm not reading it. But it is. It's, it's a theology book. It's about what does this teach me about who God is? And then in light of who God is, how then do I respond? So another thing that we see here is that as God is interacting in the world that he created, God judges sin. God judges sin. God saw the wickedness of man. It was great. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, when we read about evil, we, we don't think that that, that that is something that, that we encounter. I, I've talked about before. Like We think evil is the stuff we see people on TV do. We don't think that this is just rebellion against God. It's just God at work in the world and, and, and people rebelling against him. God is clear that he is the judge of sin. And the good news for us as followers of Jesus today is God is the judge of sin, so we don't have to be. I don't have to do it. In fact, we, we don't have time to cover all the New Testament texts that say, don't do that, but I don't have to sit in judgment. In fact, it's not my role to sit in judgment. That's God's role, and I have to trust that God will do what's right when it comes to sin. Now, there's a pattern that emerges through the first six chapters of the book of Genesis, and what we see is God is already pursuing redemption. When we come to this, but when we come to this text here in chapter 6, we see that, that actually beginning back in chapter 3 into 4 into 5, God is already interacting with people. He's judging sin, but yet he's showing redemption in, in the meantime. He's showing a picture that, that his judgment won't be complete, that, that he's going to judge sin, but, but then he's also going to provide a way out. God is already pursuing redemption, and it's just the beginning of God's story. And we're going to see more about that next week as we go into Noah and the flood account, but God is already setting a pattern that, that carries on into the New Testament. So we use this word, uh, sin, and so uh, we need to start with a definition because many of us have a faulty definition of the word sin. When we hear the word sin, in fact, in our culture, when it comes to people who say, well, well what you're doing is wrong, and, and, and you might get just a person who lives in culture who, who isn't a follower of Jesus, and they would say, do you think something is sin? And if you say that it is sin, in fact, in Canada, you can get in trouble for this. If you say a, a, a lifestyle is sin-filled, then, then that's actually considered bad because what you're saying is misunderstood. Because when, when the Bible's talking about sin, here's what it's talking about. The actions by which humans rebel against God, missing his purpose for their lives. 
It's rebellion against God. And we saw this way back in Genesis chapter one, that if we think about the very first sin committed by the very first people, it was what? It was rebellion against God. God gave them a simple instruction that was, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do it. You can eat from every other tree, but that one. And so what tree did they eat of? That one. But in, and if you think about it, and if you just go, okay, well, wait, what did they do that was so egregious that we today are still paying the price? They rebelled against God. Because what they pursued was actually a good thing. Some people might debate that. What they per, was pursuing was the knowledge of good and evil. That in and of itself is good. What's bad? The knowledge of good and evil apart from God apart from dependence upon God. And so as they declared their independence, it was an active rebellion against who God is that, that when that happened, that was the very first sin that we see revealed in God's story. And that changes how we think of it. Because often we just think of sin is the bad stuff that I do, and then I do some good stuff too, and so I, I shouldn't do the bad stuff, I should do the good stuff. But, but really, that's, yes, when we're outside and rebelling against God, some of those things will be bad, but some of those things will be good. Some of those things that, that we would actually, people in our culture would say, are good things, but the rebellion against who God is. So what's the truth about sin? What's the truth about sin? And what we see is that um, it's a downward spiral, right, that impacts all of society. Sin is a downward society-wide spiral. Left to our own, humanity does not get better over time. We like to think we do. Culture wants to say we do. Culture wants to say, don't worry, we can fix it on our own. We don't need God. Why would we need God? We're smart. We can figure it out. Sin isn't just a personal issue. Over time, humanity doesn't improve on their own, even though we think we do. And we're going to see that unfold over the next few chapters. The humanity thinks, man, we got this. But the biggest danger is thinking that we can solve our problems without God. Now, there are some obvious ways that we see this play out in our culture Okay, uh, there's, there's some hot button cultural topics that we face that as Christians, it ends up causing, causing political wars over these really moral issues. In, in the 1970s, there's a landmark case that legalized abortion. And since then, there's been a culture war talking about abortion. And when we really think about it, it is at its heart a moral issue. That there's a lot of misinformation out there about that, that, hey, that this is, you know, it's turned into a human rights issue. And it's led to a culture that isn't just here in the United States, but worldwide, that now has embraced this idea that taking the life of an unborn child is actually, actually defending the rights of a woman. Another issue, right? Gay marriage, another issue. The current transgender issues that are going on in our culture, another issue. And you can, you can name them, right? Like over time, there's these, these ideas that, man, what, 
what seems to be out of alignment with God's plan is actually become right. But here's the thing. The real threat, I believe, is far more subtle than that. The real threat is that people can think that we can exist without God. And, and you know, if, if we think about what's happening in, in really worldwide, and it is true that in academia, that, that we are training our, our, our students in academia that, that the biggest threat isn't about actions, it's about philosophy and about embracing a worldview that God doesn't exist and you don't need him. And yet we get focused in on the particulars of the issue and go, wow, the bigger threat is convincing people that you can exist just fine on your own without God. That's the mindset of the communist world. It's the mindset that we see in the world today that says, I just want to take your country. If I don't believe that God exists and God doesn't bring judgment, then all of a sudden I can justify anything that I do. And what happens is sin dulls our senses over time. Sin dulls our senses over time. We just kind of get used to it. Over time, we just kind of get used to it and if we talk about um, one of the major cultural influences, we talked about this week in our sermon meeting, one of the major cultural influences that shape how we think are sitcoms. If you think about it, if I can get you laughing, then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, okay, well, that doesn't seem so bad. And in many sitcoms, the person who's out of alignment with God's best, the person who's out of alignment with God's instruction actually seems to be like the person who has it the most together. They're the person who's actually found freedom. They're the person who's actually discovered who they really are. They're living in freedom and everybody else is living in oppression. They got to learn to be free and embrace who you are. And then it brings in cultural topics that, that aren't okay. It brings in things like back in the 1990s into 2000s, a, a show called Friends. Remember back in the day when you had to like set apart time on Thursday night because you had to like watch a show because on a particular place and time. I know kids, this is mind blowing, right? <laughs> Boom, you had to do what? And then all of a sudden this thing came out called a DVR and there was freedom because now I can watch a show whenever I want. And, and we live in a generation that's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> There's a show called Friends. It was funny. It is funny. And yet, over time, there were certain little subtle things that just get normalized, whether that's sex outside of marriage, whether that's pornography, whatever the issue is, all of a sudden, it just got normalized in a sitcom. It just seems like, well, this is normal. This is, we should just be able to talk about these things. These are just the, the normal parts of life. And yet, it just kind of dulls our senses. And you may be thinking of another show. I have another one in mind right now that, that if you think about it, and it just kind of normalizes and I know as guys, we're not allowed to say, like, there are certain sitcoms that always show what? Dad's an idiot. Dad's a moron. Do you think that's on accident? If we can convince the world that dads are idiots, and yet our call as men is to be spiritual leaders in our home, do you think this is like, oh, wow, I can't believe that's a strange coincidence? No, it's dulling our senses. And which leads to the final thing, that wrong may eventually become right. Wrong eventually becomes right. As followers of Jesus, um, we, have to, we have to know that this is true, and yet we face a bigger threat than the culture we live in. 
I believe this is true. None of these is our biggest threat. As followers of Jesus, our biggest threat is thinking that, that we have it all figured out, having maybe even pity on our society, and thinking that if they would just fix themselves, everything would be okay, and God wouldn't bring judgment to America because they fixed their moral problem. The problem with that is it's an Old Testament, Old Covenant, not gospel perspective. Nowhere in the scriptures do we read that the United States of America is, is going to receive judgment because of the actions. That's just not there. Jesus has received the punishment for sin. And that means we get the freedom of, instead of judging people, we get to be good news proclaimers. We get to be people who are like, hey, yes, sin's a problem, but there's a solution, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus talks about this threat. In, in Luke chapter 18, he, he tells a parable. It says in Luke 18 that, that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous or they were with, right with God and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee. Now, when you hear that word Pharisee, I think that a lot of Bible teachers over time has given us a misperspective. And, and we just think of Pharisee as don't be like a Pharisee. But when you think about what a Pharisee was and the days in which Jesus was living, yes, many of them were hypocritical, but more important, you need to see that they were the people who were the closest to the truth. Think Orthodox believer. This person is an Orthodox believer who loved God, Right? And what does he do? One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. When you hear tax collector, think about the person that you know is dishonest. Think about the person who um, has, is a collaborator with the, the enemy, a person who you could call a traitor. That's one of the, the things in our country that they can put you to death for is being a traitor. So that's a big deal. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this, God, I thank you. I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. God, I'm so grateful. I'm not like them. And guess what? Not one of those people would God say you should be like them. Man, I'm not like them. And what was the response of the other person? The other man just cried out to God for mercy because he knew he was a sinner. He knew he was a rebel against God and says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a rebel against you. That's our story. All of us have had the same problem and our only hope is through a new beginning. Our only hope is through a new beginning. It's not in convincing people that God's gonna bring judgment because in Genesis chapter six, we see that God does that. No, it's, it's saying, okay, wait, God has brought judgment and he's provided a way out and it's through a new beginning. And we're gonna talk about this more next week because Noah's story is the beginning of a new beginning. It's a theme that God plays throughout his story. Sin is the problem we all have. And the thing is, it's always been the problem. In a letter that he wrote, the Apostle Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Notice he doesn't say, you were bad once and God wouldn't make you good. And your problem was you were dead in your rebellion. You were dead in your rebellion and once you once walked. 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are by nature rebels against God. And because humanity is rebels against God, they're going to receive God's judgment. But God has also, the good news is, God has also provided a way out. He's provided an exit plan that that we need to embrace that only a new beginning with Jesus will transform people's lives. And if we're asking people to change apart from the gospel, if we're asking people to fix their moral problem without Jesus, we're lying to them because we're telling them they can fix their sin problem by action, but we couldn't fix our sin problem with action. It required that we would simply lay down our lives and say, God, I trust you. I will never be able to give myself life. I'll never be able to overcome my sin problem. I trust that you have. I trust that Jesus is the only way out. And when that happens, we get a new beginning. Paul wrote also to the church in Corinth, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And if we have a relationship with Jesus, if we know him and he's given us new life, that's our story. We have a new beginning. And our part is to get to tell people how they get to be part of having a new beginning as well. You see, God is better than I think he is. God is better than I think he is. And he's already telling this, that you know what? It's not good for people to be able to live for 900 years without me. I'm gonna limit it down to 120 years. One of the authors that I read, when it's talking about God's regret and the fact that God is sorry, that's the same word actually in in the Hebrew text. And, And that word, he really makes a compelling argument that that word, when he's talking about regret and he's not trying to explain away the fact that God is emotional and God experiences emotions, God is emotional and God experiences emotions, but he does a really great word study on the reality that, that, that things are out of balance. And, and when he looks at that word throughout the scriptures, he, he takes a look and saying, okay, that kind of regret maybe isn't the best translation. Really what it's saying is God sees that things are out of balance and God needs to restore balance. And what has to happen is that, that God brings judgment in order to restore the world into balance, to overcome the rebellion that people could once again put God into their lives. We don't know what the evil is here. We don't know what they thought about all the time. But it appears to be that they had eliminated their need for God and and God's activity in their lives. So as we head into this week, what do we do with this? What do we do? The next steps, first one says, place my trust in Jesus for a new beginning. No matter where you find yourself, no matter what your story has been, there's an opportunity for you to experience a new beginning by saying, you know what, I, I trust Jesus. I exchange my life for new life in Christ. And if you find yourself in this place, you're like, I've been looking, I've been searching. How is it that I can know God? It's only through coming to faith in Jesus. And, and we would love to know about that. If that's your next step, would you, would you write it on your, your communication card? Would you, would you go online on the shoot on the front of your, the, the little card on the front of your bulletin there and go to the link and in the comments say, you know what, today I, I've trusted Jesus for a new beginning. 
The second one is, as you look at that statement this week on, on your mirror that says, God is better than I think he is, then do what? Embrace the gospel and what God says about who you are. What does God say about who you are? You are a new creation in Christ. And, and then guess what? He says that you're an ambassador of reconciliation. He doesn't say you're an ambassador to judge the world. That's Jesus's job. That's God's job. Your job is to be a minister of reconciliation, that people would be, he pleads, right? Paul's pleading. I plead that you would be reconciled to God. That's our part. And then finally, something we're going to do right now, all of our venues, here's what we're going to do. We're going to ask God a question. And what we're going to ask God to do is to bring to mind where he's better than, than we think he is. I talked to this week, man. I was just waiting. It's coming. It's coming. That rock is coming. I know it's coming. Got in my car last night. All right. Maybe tonight. Maybe tonight. Maybe tomorrow I'll have a different story to tell because it'll come and my, my windshield will be broken once again. I just want to be clear. This is a metaphor, okay? I want to be clear. Whether or not my window breaks is not a big deal. What you're facing in your life is a big deal. The disappointment, the tragedy, the frustration, whatever it is where you're like, yeah, God, I think you're mostly good, but in this area, you've really let me down. I want you to allow him to, to bring it to mind. And to, to remind you that Jesus is proof that God is for you and he loves you. That Jesus is proof that, that he's better than you think he is. And so right now, I'm going to ask you to ask that question. And if God gives you something, to write it down. Write it down on your bulletin. Write it down on a note. And then as you walk through this week, ask him to keep reminding you where he's better than you think he is. So God, in this moment, would you bring to mind where you are better than we think you are? So I'm going to ask you in this moment to keep that thing at the front of your mind. And in every one of our venues um, here in live, I'm going to ask you to stand. And with that thing at the front of your mind, we're going to worship. We're going to worship because God is better than we think he is. And Jesus is proof. God, would you guide us now through the power of your spirit in us? Would you guide us in our worship? We ask in Jesus' name.